Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Professor Clarissa Smith is Professor of Sexual Cultures and Associate Director of the Centre for Research in Media and Cultural Studies at the University of Sunderland. She researches sex, sexual identities and sexual representations in contemporary culture. She's interested in the different kinds of pornography across different technologies, in how people access and engage with pornographic materials and with other forms of sexualised products. Since 2014, she's been the founding co-editor of the academic journal Porn Studies. Her recent publications include Routledge's Companion to Media, Sex and Sexuality, published in 2017, and One for the Girls, published in 2012. That particular book provided a new basis for understanding women's pleasures in sexually explicit materials through focusing on the production and consumption of Four Women magazine. So welcome to Professor Clarissa Smith. Um, I've done my introductory um, chat earlier about her bio and her amazing work in this particular field. And we're very, very delighted and honoured that you're joining us on this Get a Grip podcast series. Welcome, Clarissa. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, as you know, I work in the area of parenting and education and family life. And I have been recently doing a lot of research into young people's consumption of pornography and really just looking into it a little bit closer. Parents have a few more concerns in this particular context with young people's access to digital technologies. And it's it's coming up as an issue for me as a practitioner working with parents. So I've done lots of research recently. I've been sort of looking into the extent to which young people use it, why why they use it. Now, some of that, I think, for many parents that I meet is quite shocking. And I've discovered that parents' knowledge of this particular area is very, very minimal. And that's why I started on this journey of interviewing, you know, eminent researchers like you, just so that we are keeping in touch with really what's going on and thinking about these particular issues in, a, in different ways. So we're going to be very excited to hear your particular views on these different things, Clarissa. Um, I have I have learned from the research or I've read incorrectly or not that actually teenagers are often the, the biggest consumers of online pornography. And certainly it's mentioned in one publication that the average age a boy in the UK encounters pornography accidentally or not is 11. What do you think of those stats? Is that accurate or is there something else that parents need to sort of think about when they hear those stats? Well, I think, you know, of course, it, it's it's obvious that adults are going to worry about young people and their access to pornography. One of the problems in this area is that there's a lot of of heat and light in, in the debates. Um, and also the statistics like that one you've you've just cited don't really have any basis 
in good science or good research. And that one about 11 um, being the time that young boys view porn is one that has just has accreted status as truth through it being constantly repeated right actually it's very difficult i have yet to find anything authoritative that actually shows that that was a piece of research so um it's it's interesting how it how the story gets told um and over and over again until it achieves that status of being truth and you know i think it's important that we do recognize that adults particularly parents have worries about what their kids are doing with tech and particularly around sexual content but also that we need to be you know to take a step back and to ask why might it be that young people want to be looking at that material and what what then do we need to do what would be good interventions for young people um rather than getting really uptight and worried and you know what are we how are we going to protect or prohibit young people from looking at sexual content um so yeah, I won't go on And Clarissa, you know, that's the great value of us chatting because yeah. I think initially, even as a criminologist, I've been quite shocked by some of the material that I've read or seen in this particular area and realising, you know, for first time people actually thinking about what children may have access to, it is initially quite shocking. And um, particularly mm. if we do consider, and certainly parents have told me their, their young children are viewing pornography, you know, and the, I think I think that as you you have very helpfully put it in a bigger context and once we go past that stage of alarm and distress and panic but if we don't know how to talk to our child about these issues you open up a new space of thinking about the why and is it always a corrupting influence you know we end up sounding like Mary Whitehouse instead of instead of actually you know the next stage is really that reflective space that you encouraging parents and certainly through your literature it's encouraged me to calm down a little bit and just open it up a bit and that's very helpful. Um, I think um, in terms of why young people access it can we sort of dwell on that a little bit? Um, Yes. I've certainly maybe not correctly but I've understood that it may be just from from some of your work that it could be just as simple as boredom um, you know, they come across it, they don't come across it, they don't, you know, they just want something to do when they're bored or it doesn't seem to be, you know, something that th- th- they often have a very casual approach to. Is that correct? Yes, I think I, th- I think that's definitely true that there are, once people are actually consuming pornography as in seeking it out in order to, um, to engage in, well, let uh, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say on, on your podcast, but okay. If if they're looking at porn for masturbatory purposes, that then often that is driven for young people by a sense of boredom. They've got nothing better to do. They can't sleep, or um, you know they're just feeling a kind of general sense of tension in the body that gets relieved by. Um, 10 minutes of viewing a porn film and, and masturbating. But there are other reasons um, that are not to do with that kind of action um, around why young people might be looking 
at pornography or go seeking it out. One of the things that's really interesting about the research that we did with adults um, from the age range of 18 through to 80, there was a narrative that lots of people told us, which was about knowing there was some secret in the house or that there was a secret uh, that related to adults and sexuality that they needed to find. And that, that was their first encounter with porn, that they searched the house or they went looking in, you know, in spaces that they weren't meant to be and, and accidentally discovered, you know, though it's not so accidentally, that's my point really. Is that but, and that, that was in the past, wasn't it? Nowadays, nobody needs to go looking around the house. These children have their own phones and they put in a keyword and press return. That's right. But the, I think the impulse is still the same, that it is a kind of, um, it's a desire to know something about the secrets of what it means to be adult and about what it might feel like to have access to the sexual element of life, which, you know, surrounds young people in all kinds of ways. It surrounds all of us. Uh, the, the idea that you will eventually form a relationship with another person and that this will be sexual seems to be part of, you know, it's our entire narrative about relationships. Even if it's not overtly sexual, there is a sense that, you know, to be an adult is to engage in that kind of relationship. And young people are thinking about, well, what will that mean for me? How will I prepare for that? What does it mean to be sexual? What what are my feelings? So, you know, those are reasons why young people go looking for pornography. And it's perfectly uh, understandable. So as a yeah. parent, you know, that sexual curiosity, I expect, yeah. in fact, I hope it comes for a child that is, you know, emerging and developing in a normal way. However, the, you know, if you'd go to Amsterdam for the weekend with your 12-year-old and they see women in, in windows and, and you know, I uh, th there's nothing wrong with the sexual curiosity, but it's what they see before we even have a conversation with them. I'm more worried about the content of the pornographic world, some of it. That, mm. that that a young brain could see that's that's extreme, that's obscene. It's it's sort of more about the, the the issue around the quality of what they're watching. I think is of great concern because parents have no control over that. They want to shut it down, which obviously isn't ideal either. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's a lot of material out there that you wouldn't want your your young child to to be viewing, and of this is one of the problems about the ways in which tech might might open up all of that access, that it feels uh, much less safe to be inadvertently or, you know, just casually kind of moving around in in the space that is the internet because of what what you might stumble across. And, you know, um, I think that is one of the reasons that, Parents will talk about, you know, in the past it used to be like this and now it's like this. And there is no doubt that the content that young people can get access to is um, more explicit than it has probably ever been. Um, and, you know, the, the issues are about how we have those conversations with young people earlier, I think. Absolutely. And, or, 
yeah and also then thinking about well what what would we rather they were doing and I don't think it's an option now to say that they mustn't see anything sexual um I think we do need to really think very hard about well how would we offer materials that would address some of that sexual curiosity in in age appropriate ways in ways that we can feel comfortable um allowing kids to see how can we deal with the questions that they have because of course one of the big problems that you find all the time is that parents don't really want to talk to their kids some parents don't want to talk to their kids about about sex and also kids don't want to talk to their parents about sex so actually there are some things that it feels just too embarrassing to talk to parents about and with the best will in the world I think there is a point at which parents have to acknowledge that they won't be the primary educator in in this space right that even even if you have a great relationship there are still some things that your child will want to keep as their own and I I speak feelingly here you know because I mean that certainly happened to me that um with my kids that there came a point where it was kind of no I'm not going there with you mom we've talked about other things so you know and I I think that there needs to be a mixed ecology, really, I guess, of, of materials for young people, but also for parents, you know, if, it, if we need to be thinking about what what might be good sex education for our kids, what what would that really look like? And, and what is it that we're hoping to achieve for our kids? You know, uh, my generation, our generation has grown up with ideas of, of guilt and shame around sex and you know it would be better if we were that have caused quite considerable difficulties for people in expressing themselves and articulating what they want and talking about pleasure as well which needs to be part of sex education I think uh, the problem is that when we focus on what are we going to stop kids getting access to, we're not thinking about what would be better for them to have access to. And I think we do need to change the conversation somewhat to start talking about that. I think you've made some brilliant points. What you're making me think about is actually, you know, parents need to be ahead of the game. We need to be proactive. We need to find material. You know, these children want to know what people do when they have sex. They need to be able to have a, some idea. And I think it's just finding material we're comfortable with as parents, maybe discussing or even a film that shows it that we're happy to watch together and then discuss or maybe encourage them to watch and then talk to us about. But as you suggest, you know, not having any discussion is very counterproductive, although very, very understandable for so many parents. Um, also, what, what, this this point about you know we're always talking drilling in to, you know talking about consent and you know the the fear around sex that we don't want to get the, them to get anyone pregnant we don't want them to hurt anyone we don't want them to get you know accused of anything and r- rather than I think it's totally counterintuitive as a nation to talk about the pleasure associated with sex and um, one of the things you mentioned um you know and t- talking about pleasure. Recently, I read Michelle Obama's amazing autobiography. And there's one of the things I remember reading in that book. I thought, wow, she talks about her father um, 
telling her that sex was pleasurable and fun and enjoyable between two people who loved each other. Now, I thought that was an amazing thing for her to put in that book because for someone like her to say that, to to relax people into those conversations by talking about how that space opened up with her father was brilliant. And um, would you agree that that's a a lovely sort of um, way of modelling it? Absolutely, absolutely. And actually, um, in in some follow up questionnaires that I did with people, which I haven't, I haven't actually published from this, but uh, one of the questions was um, looking back on your relationship with your parents. What's the one thing you wish they had told you about sex? And so many people said that they wish they'd been they'd had a conversation about it being fun being pleasurable, being a really great bonus uh, to a relationship, you know, that that there were all kinds of ways in which they they just wished their parents had been positive about sex and sexuality. And I think that is one of the things that, you know, we we could do um, and, and think more seriously about how would we do that in sex education, which is coming into schools next year. How, how would we articulate uh, the ways in which this is a pleasurable activity and that should be for both parties or whether there are more people involved than just two, um, and, and how to ensure that that's part of your sex life, how pleasure is something that you are entitled to and also that so is the person you're, you're having sex with, right, and how, how to articulate that. I think that's, that's really important. It's not just consent there. It's actually about thinking ethically, I guess, about, about, um, about sexual relationships. And, and providing what- sort of balanced you know, conversations. I mean, we've come so far in talking about sexual identity in this country. Um, You know, people are, young people are so fluent in talking about, perhaps thinking about who they are, who they're attracted to. That's no longer a stigma at all, is it? No, well, it's certainly not amongst young people, though I I suspect that there still are, you know, there are uh, difficulties that, that young people may encounter as they move through um, different spaces amongst their peers I think that there has been massive change but I'm not I'm not so convinced that that is totally widespread and you know that there's a kind of idea of toleration of Mm. sexual minorities rather than acceptance more than acceptance you know just simply that that um, sexual minorities are as valued as heterosexuality. I mean, I, th- I think we see that in things like sex education where, you know, we've had that row happening in Birmingham about, you know, where we're kind of ending up debating whether or not LGBTQ people have um, the right to exist. You know, it's uh, these shouldn't be debates that we're having. And in sex education, really LGBTQ should be there with heterosexual relationships because, 
you know, we do know that sexual minorities are engaged in just as loving, just as intimate, just as healthy relationships as as heterosexual families. And, and in terms of mental health, we know that those young people who may belong to the LGBT community often suffer disproportionately in terms of their mental health because they don't have the support and the acceptance that other children may have. Yes, Yes. Uh, also, I read, is this correct, Clarissa, that in the research that often um, perhaps children who do belong to the LGBT community are more likely to find, you know, um, pornography perhaps as a source of well-being and connection to other young people who might be feeling like that? Yeah, so there's quite a lot of evidence, actually, that um, it's been a resource for LGBTQ, well, particularly gay men, actually. I mean, you can see that in in um, in quite long-term studies, you know, that older gay men talk about pornography as being the first space in which they understood that they were not alone and that they, you know, that their, their desires and their feelings were ones that other people experience too and so you know there is I, I think there's something very important there in recognizing that um that as young people are moving through their various stage, stages of sexual development that feeling recognized and validated and like other people is really important um and that they're not getting that validation elsewhere. So pornography becomes the place they turn to. And I think that's a really important lesson for us more generally is that pornography isn't meant as a sex education tool. And yet, because we're not offering yeah. good, useful sex education, that's a space that young people turn to. And, you know, it may be that um, someone finds something that is uh, great, you know, that offers um, a sense of pleasure, consent, interesting uh, perspectives on sexuality. But it's also equally possible that they'll light on something that is not um, not like that or is, you know, shocks them or disgusts them or whatever else. And, and I think we, you know, it, we need to prepare young people for the various journeys that they may take in exploring their sexuality because exploration is a part of of that human development of of sexuality you know that we explore everything everything that we do as human endeavors is a form of exploration from developing tastes in food through developing our tastes in other media forms and we move bit by bit through those things and you know in order to um, enable that to happen properly we need to be having lots of conversations about sexuality and about how um, bodily autonomy and, and issues of consent are a big part of everyday life you know they don't have to be in terms of you know giving lessons on on porn but more generally around you know just how people ought to interact. And I think it's really important that we we go back to questions of media literacy more generally, right? There's been a, a backlash against media literacy and media education in, um, in more recent times. But, you know, those are key aspects of understanding 
the world that we live in, you know, that pornography is mediated sexualities, right? And, and young people need to understand how media work. They are actually very media savvy, much more media savvy maybe than uh, I was, at, at, you know, at under 18, um, because they're surrounded by it. But at the same time, you know, we're not always giving them the tools to think critically about what they're viewing, how, um, you know, problematic some of the stories may be. And I think, you know, there are a lot of things about rom-coms, for example. We could be talking about the lack of consent in rom-coms and the way that uh, that stalking an, an ex-girlfriend is presented as as funny in a rom-com, you know, and that eventually you'll get the girl. Well, that's a really problematic message uh, there. And we need to be thinking more complexly about what kinds of education we're going to give young people that will enable them to think critically about pornography as one of the media forms that they encounter. And there's absolutely um, the case that it's just not happening in, in most homes because this is, you know, you're making me open up my thinking about how to approach this very helpfully. But again, films, books, I've just read a book where there was a sort of, it looked like a love scene, but actually it consisted of rape. And that is, it was so it was so well written that I could discuss it with my 12-year-old. So there's opportunities within literature, within stories, and films for us to have these softer conversations. What's happening is no one is having the conversation. These children are accessing material and without their parents knowing often and no one has a clue what's going on in those brains and what they're thinking but there's no one to talk to you know these things about and they're, they're, they may be worrying or not, or not having a clue about how to actually interpret or respond to that material. Yes, I, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think that's certainly true. And also, you know, the, the, the problem about the ways in which we talk in public about pornography is always in terms of its problems. Yeah. So you've got, you've got young people who are, you know, engaging with some forms of porn and, and maybe, you know, the stuff that they're looking at is, is really not a problem, right? I mean, it may be... Uh, Images <laughs> or, yeah. Whatever. But, you know, that they're, they're looking at really well-produced, um, inclusive and, uh, and, and nice. I'm going to use the word nice because I can't think of enough <laughs> off the top of my head here. But, you know, and then they're, they're kind of contrasting that with... But porn is supposed to be really damaging. So how come you know? So there's something there about the 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 problems of thinking about well, why is this giving me pleasure if it's supposed to be so awful? You know. And- yeah, but but as you say, you know, it's like it's a it's a the, the the pornographic offering, say on a site like Pornhub, is so vast that there's something for everyone in there. But the problem is, parents know that there will be content that depicts rape that some people will find arousing. There will be content that depicts violence against women. And it doesn't it doesn't look like it's consensual. And I think the worry is you're so afraid of them coming across obscene material, things that are, you know, absolutely very difficult for, for young people to see and view. But that it's not that we don't think they, you know, they have a right to watch maybe softer pornography if you know what I mean so we're just putting the gates on it and putting the lock on the padlock on the door 
Yes, I, I, I know. It's, um, I mean, this is a, there's no point in, in pretending that it's not a difficult issue. It, it is a really difficult issue. And it is, um, you know, we've got to balance the rights of young people to explore elements of their sexuality. Um, and I, th- I think, you know, we just can't get away from the fact that we need to think about this um, really more complexly than simply prohibition and protection. Um, because that isn't going to take account of young people's needs and their desires. And they are learning something every time they come up against a prohibition. They are learning something about sex. That sex is something that they it's are wrong and damaging for. and corrupting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Clarissa, you know that the, the porn, uh, the ID verification technology that the government was introducing. Um, yes. So, so for people who don't know what that means, it's they're introducing a sort of a a gateway, a portal that, that that you'll have to prove your age before you're able to access adult content online. Um, what what are your views on that? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure it's, uh, well, I'm pretty sure it's not a great thing. I think that it appears as if the government is doing something and therefore that uh, always works well for the politicians. I think I think the legislation comes from a reasonable place. Uh, it's, it, you know, of course, there are worries about young people accessing material that adults would rather they didn't get sight of and that they're worried about the, them not being old enough to see that material mature enough. But I think the legislation itself is a bit of a mess um, and not likely to do what it sets out to do. I think it will stop some teens accessing websites, but you know, if we take seriously that idea that young people seek out sexually explicit materials for a variety of entirely reasonable reasons, then all that's going to do is send them down other routes of access. And young people are much more savvy about getting around web blocks and all the rest of it than adults are. So we're not really dealing there with the underlying issue of them seeking knowledge of sex, sexuality and their own sexual selves. More than that, there are the issues about privacy. Um, This is going to create a massive database of habits. um, And yet there's no checks and balances in place to protect people's privacy. And that's a real concern. Absolutely. And Uh, you've got sites like Ashley Madison, where everyone was revealed who was having an affair, plus their sexual interests. Yeah. Yes. And this one, you know, I mean, the thing is that uh, just because somebody looks at a particular form of pornography, even if they're looking at it for, you know, the space of a month, you know, at different times, doesn't mean to say that that's actually what they're really interested in. You know, if we take seriously the idea that people are testing their themselves against what is uh, you know, what's happening in a a porn film? Does this excite me? Would this excite me? Would I like to do it? Would I want to do it? All of those those questions. There will be, you know, it's a problem to have that captured 
in ways that could then come back to bite somebody very hard later. And actually, it doesn't mean even if your 15 year old is viewing, you know, gay pornography, it doesn't mean they're actually gay, does it? it you know, there's a it's parents as well need to differentiate between fantasy, perhaps and interest and curiosity and actually what's happening in real life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, it's really interesting to think about the ways in which we might talk about literature as something that gives us access onto what other people are doing mm. and wanting to engage with somebody else's activities without that, wanting that to ever be your own, uh, you know, or ever having any intention of, of following that particular path. But when it comes to porn, we somehow see that there's a, a a direct connection between what you're viewing and what you want to do. And actually, there isn't the evidence for that, right? So that that's another issue that we too easily go down that line that this, you know, if you're looking at this, you must want to do it. And I, I don't know that that's at all the case. But I mean, there are other things that I think I, I would like to say. You did mention Pornhub as one of the spaces in which um, young people have access to all kinds of material that that parents might not want them to have access to. But actually, that's a company. <laughs> that's one of the companies that the government has turned to in order to um, affect these age verification tools. And so, you know, one of the largest companies producing very uh, mainstream, very um, uh, particular kinds of, of pornographic content is going to become a gateway for um, it, it kind of solidifies their power in the market in ways that I, I think are re probably really bad for sexual expression. Um, that those the measures are going to impact smaller producers most, and they're the people who are making kinds of porn that do attempt alternative kinds of storylines that seek to include narratives of consent and pleasure, offer different kinds of bodies and, and a sense of pleasure and, and excitement and intimacy in their their representations. But those are likely to be the companies that are hit hardest by this kind of intervention. That's interesting. I'm sure nobody's thought about it in that way before. Well, it's one of the things that the, um, the government has kind of sidelined in terms of uh, approaches, right? They, they're not willing to recognise that um, this is a form of censorship that is going to impact the people who are attempting to do something different that is going to impact them harder than it is any of the large producers who have a vested interest in keeping things the same. So, you know, there's a really, because it's going to cost money, you know, to have this in place. And also that they're likely to be homegrown producers as well, right? So British um, producers of pornography are likely to be hit hardest simply because they are, in a space, they belong geographically to Britain and therefore can be pursued for non-compliance right, in a way right. that Pornhub and others can't be, right? But Pornhub is going along with this precisely because it fits with their kind of, you know, their, their interests in terms of data collection and uh, yeah. working with 
with uh, government, you know, and then they're a tech company rather than a porn company. They're much more interested in the In the tech. data, in the data, in the data collection and what they can learn from it. Yeah, and 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 selling that, you know, the data and the, the uh, you know, so, so there's a whole range of things that I think are a problem and teasing those out is, is very difficult to do. And I think we have to recognise as well that, you know, censorship always has an impact it always has an impact on content and not necessarily the impact that we would like it to have right um that you know the, the the legislators would like it to have so that you know you can create something really problematic out of your your censorship and um i think it you know becomes an a uh, a thing to get around. We find that with the video nasties in the 1980s, that the CPS come up with a list of, of films that are banned, and that immediately becomes the shopping list for young people who want to see the banned films, right? So, and like so something like Clockwork Orange, my God, the teenagers love it, and it's 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 very you know shocking in in lots of ways. Yeah. But I, I, of course, one of the problems about about censorship is that it thinks it knows why young people are interested in the materials that they're seeking out. And actually it doesn't. It refuses to pay any attention to what they're really interested in, in terms of, you know, Clockwork Orange is a really complex story about about um, different relationships of, of power and, um, and, and youth cultures. Uh, and, you know, censorship just looks at one aspect of it, you know, that it seems to be advocating violence, but that's not all it's doing. And as you suggest, Clarissa, what's interesting about, say, a film like Clockwork Orange is that the censorship draws the attention to the wrong things. So the the actual more important themes that we could be discussing with our teenagers about Clockwork Orange are lost because of the rape scenes or whatever are interpreted as rape scenes that nobody wants them to see. Um, can I just go back to gender differences? So say, remember, you know, if parents are listening to this and they have a 14-year-old girl or a 15-year-old boy, are there any particular, if you were parenting children of that age now, are there any particular nuanced differences in terms of message that you would like to convey to those particular, you know, to a boy or a girl? Should we be having differentiated sort of conversations with them um, when we do have the open and the transparent and the constructive chats <laughs> yeah it's it's a really difficult one because you know there of course there are some differences between men and women in terms of their interests in pornography but how far, far those have been driven by um, you know cultural scripts around what's right for women and what's right for men is difficult to unpack there right and um, we are uh, one of the changes that we've seen recently is actually more and more young women talking about viewing pornography and seeing this as something that is interesting to them. Um, one of the things that we found that was quite striking in the differences between men and women was the idea that men um, look at porn because they feel horny and women because they want to feel horny. Horny. So there's something there about men having ownership of 
their desire and their their uh, feelings of arousal, whereas women feel the need to plan for and to make it happen. And I don't know that those are innate or biological. I think they speak more to a kind of sense that women are still uh, less sure of their rights to um, to sexual thoughts, which is a whole to- sort of you know massive topic isn't it i think as a as a parent what i was referring to a little bit more was you know there there is evidence to suggest that some of the content in you know it seems to you know you'd be very worried about the messages that either boys or girls would take from some of the pornography. So in terms of the objectification of women, is it really consent? What is consent? Um, some of the, you know, the... I mean, I was watching Fleabag last night, you know, the new comedy series. And it's very, very interesting. I think it's a very interesting um, uh, program to watch maybe with older teenagers about sexual behaviour and consent because she doesn't behave in a conventional way. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've watched it yet, but some some of her sexual encounters are quite interesting because she's not particularly enjoying some of them, but she decides to keep going because she feels sorry for him. He's come a long way on the train, you know, and I think it's a very interesting uh, program because it's quite funny, but also it opens up this discussion about consent, about this um perhaps um, acquiescence that happens within sexual encounters, particularly for women, that may not feel right, but they feel sorry for them. And I think it's those kinds of discussions with young girls that are very important, that they have the ability. And also it discusses how she feels after the sexual encounter. So she might be totally up for a one night stand, but the next morning is a bit miffed that he leaves so quickly. Or So I think that kind of media is important perhaps to be able to open up the chats with teenagers and their parents? Uh, young women, I, I think it's really significant to think about the issues to do with young women and their experiences of consent. And I think that Fleabag, just to use that as an example, is a really um, useful representation of the ways in which young people, young women have a variety of pressures on them to conform to sexual sexual demands or sexual um, activities uh, with with young men in particular. Uh, in ways that are not necessarily about their pleasure or about their consent. Um, And it's not just porn that leads to that, right? It's um, more generally, are we talking to young women about how to acquire the the confidence um, and the space to articulate what they want and what they don't want? I mean, almost all of the narratives in romance, in um, more sexual um, representations, and just in everyday life generally, is that um, women are not in charge, and that actually it's romantic to submit to to your man, to accept what he needs above what you would like. Um, and, you know, porn isn't, the, isn't responsible for that. It's it's culture more generally that does that. And we do need to find ways of 
giving young women the confidence to have the voice that says, I don't like that and I do like that. I want to do this and I don't want to do that. Absolutely. yeah, and I, I always say to parents, you know, what's going to, the, the litmus test is when a 15 year old girl is locked in a bathroom at a party with a boy. And at one point, she doesn't really want to go ahead with something. What will she say in that moment? Will she have the confidence to say, look, you know, what, what will she say? Will she have the script? Will she know how to uh, respond to the physical pressure? Um, to, 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 to pursue that particular thing, you know, so it's really important, isn't it? That confidence, where does it come from? I suggest to parents it often comes from fathers having an amazing role to play and talking to their daughters about what a great relationship looks like, how to be, you know, what does it feel? What, how do you know you're in a relationship with a great boyfriend? Yes, I, I mean, I think I think that's uh, really important. It's also really important that, you know, I'm sure that a lot of young men are importunate with their girlfriends, not because they're not nice people, but just simply that then they're, they're not recognizing the signs of um, a young woman being ambivalent. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I mean, we're getting into quite difficult ground here but I think I think you know that we have there are real problems about the ways that we we hive off the sexual and ideas about what what it means to recognize whether or not somebody is ready for this are they going along with this we think it's all right to pressurize people into all kinds of activities that it would be better that they didn't pressurize each other into and that's one of the ways that we could be teaching about this right about it doesn't have to just be confidence to say no to to sex but it could be confidence to say no to um doing something uh, like going out somewhere that you don't want to go or to having a drink or whatever. But, you know, there are all kinds of ways our social norms um, construct giving in as as kind of a good thing. And I think, you know, maybe we need to be thinking more broadly about how we it's resilience, I guess, isn't it? Absolutely. Resilience. And resilience to peer pressure, resilience to, you know, even the concept of sexting, sending, it was just quite, you know, teenagers being asked by the most popular boy in the school to send you a, a picture of your bare chest. And, um, you know, what will you say and do in that moment? How can you weigh up at the decision to whether or not it's something you want to do? So I think... What I'm drawing out of our chat is, again, this emphasis on teaching our children to be critical thinkers, teaching them to think broadly, to weigh things up, to have the confidence to know themselves and take ownership for it. That it's, and it's perfectly acceptable to be themselves, to have their own, to develop their own sexual identity. That's a positive message from parents, isn't it? Yes, I think so. And I think also this really important thing is that, you know, you can make mistakes and they don't have to define you as well. You know, that there are uh, the important issues to learn from them, right? So, you know, that's uh, – and it's not about victim blaming. It's, you know, but simply being aware that, okay, that that – that was something I didn't like. So therefore, what am I going to do next time? What what will I, how will I 
say no or how will I not pressurize someone because you know got to recognize as well that actually in the give and take of relationships it doesn't necessarily have to be boys making all the the pressurizing and in same-sex relationships you know that that, 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 there's a there are other dynamics that that may be at work and I think we just you know uh, it's about equipping people in more holistic ways actually than just thinking yeah it's about I've got to protect them from pornography I don't know that that's going to give them the tools to to actually deal with all of the things that are going to happen I mean everybody has bad sexual experiences everybody does I think you know and we need to know how we need to equip our kids how to deal with those how to move on from them, how to develop the resilience to to know that this is not what I wanted or that feels like a mistake for me. Um, and to be able to do that without, you know, having parents disappear off into a spiral of hysteria about how awful this is. That's right. And I think what you're making me think about is is it's so much comes back to children and young people's self-esteem, sense of self in the world, how they connect to the world. But so much of that self-esteem can come from family life and positive relationships. And we can control all of those things. We can invest in the quality of our relationship with our children because that does keep them resilient. And the, the rest is a lot easier if you have a you know, if you if you focus on the quality of the relationship, what also what you're making me think is that it's very important that parents open up and talk about their past relationships with their children. So for my children, for example, it's it's shocking to hear mommy perhaps had a boyfriend before daddy um, for, for younger children or or to talk about um, opening up and saying how horrible it, it feels to be dumped or, you know, so that they actually understand that 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 experience of relationships is something we've all had and that they too will go on a journey of experience and that that's welcome yes yes I think you know there is so much invested in the idea of one true love that um it can be quite a shock to realize that in fact there are there have been more relationships than simply the the parental yeah yeah and 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 yet actually it's really important to recognise the positives of there being other relationships. You know, that one would hope that the um, the relationship that one is in and having children in is one that's come about as a result of, you know, finding out that this was not right for you, that was not right for you, but this is, you know, and and so we shouldn't we shouldn't look on experience as a, a problem or something to be avoided. It's something to be embraced for the fact that it gives us different experiences and knowledge and we learn about ourselves in all of those things. Um, and that that can be a strength. And I do I do think it's really important to have lots of conversations with your kids about, you know, what, what constitutes good treatment, to not blame your children if they're, um, you know, they're experiencing something bad at the hands of a, another child. Um, but to offer them the support that means that they learn how to deal with it, you know, to to move through it and to understand that they are resilient enough to come through those things. I think the most important thing for me myself was this idea that um, as a parent that um, 
I, I didn't have to talk to my children about everything, but I did need them to know that when push came to shove, they could talk to me about anything they needed to that, and that I would be supportive. And that didn't mean to say that I would like what I was hearing, but I would try and find ways to support them through whatever it was. And, you know, I'm kind of proud to say that I have achieved that with my kids and that, you know, I feel very certain that when when they make mistakes, they will tell me so that we can deal with those together. And I think that's probably the best that one can hope for, you know, that, that your kids actually do see you as supportive of them. Absolutely. And isn't that, the, I always say to parents that, you know, your greatest weapon, if you like, that's the wrong word, but your greatest asset is the transparency that you can generate between you. And they, you know, and also encouraging your children that, that, that they may not speak to you, but they might want to sp- speak to Uncle David about that particular issue. So children need a diversity of people that love them and that they can turn to. It doesn't necessarily have to be mummy or daddy, you know, it can be other people. Um, so I think that, and, and congratulations on reaching that point with your children because it's blooming hard work, isn't it? <laughs> yes, and I, I tell you, plenty of false starts and problems along the way. But I think I think that's, you know, that that's one of the things that you, you just have to recognise as a parent that it's not going to be smooth sailing. It wasn't when they were tiny, even if you wanted to protect them from everything you couldn't. And you know, that you you just have to find the way of, of moving through those things. I would say that if a parent is worried about uh, these issues, you know, they should be looking for resources that do um, offer something that they, they feel is acceptable for the young people to be reading um, in order to understand some of these really difficult issues around sex and sexuality. You know, that there are resources out there that, that parents could be pointing their kids to if they can't do that conversation themselves. And that there's, you know, there are lots of um, really interesting sex education blogs out there, Um, many of them, you know, that really don't take a a negative um, approach to sexuality and young people, but also don't, um, oversell the positives as well, you know. So, I think if if you're the kind of parent who has difficulties talking to your young person, then going for resources that you you feel comfortable with your young person reading, then that that can be a great aid. So, absolutely, and I'm you know desperate to ask, can you signpost us to some of them? Because um, I I only ever know really about you know the sex education forum site is very good for certainly researchers like me because I can sort of translate some of the material into things that parents could use as conversation starters, etc. But if you can highlight anything, that would be great, Clarissa. Well, um, people like Brooke and also Bish Training. That's B I S H Bish training but also um there's scarletine which is based in the states but uh, speaks to everyone you know it's worldwide of course because these are websites so yeah on the uh, brookside the family planning association has some good resources as well as does the nspcc um so you know there's lots of uh, different organizations who are offering materials um 
and I, I do think that Bish is, is certainly for uh, slightly older teens. I think it's a great resource and one that, you know, uh, refuses to go down that route of, you know, negativity, but also is quite open about the fact that young people will be having issues. And I think that's also true of Scarleting as well, that, you know, it is a, a really great resource for young people to ask questions and get answers about all sorts of aspects of uh, sex and relationships. And I really love the the sort of the the message that we're giving parents. It gets you know, try and encourage your child that it's good to ask questions and that you can maybe help them find places where they may find the answer. It may not be you that has that direct discussion about some things, but you're certainly facilitating and encouraging and supporting. Yes, absolutely. And you know the the most amazing thing would be simply to just be supporting of your teen as they go through this journey because it is really confusing and you know porn isn't a sex educator what would be better sex education for your child that's you know to help them develop and to to access a really healthy sexual development for themselves you know what works for them that I, I can't think of a better legacy for parents. Exactly. Our better point to leave our interview. So thank you, Clarissa, so much. You've really expanded my thinking and made me confident in, in terms of an approach that I might take with my own, um, you know, uh, adolescence. So thank you so much for joining us. And um, we'll, 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 we'll create lots of little notes that ch- uh, parents can download as a result of the podcast. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. That's great. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.